Welcome to another episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening the door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. In this episode, we explore the West Midlands, taking in a ride on the world's first bicycle in Warwickshire. Three Cotswold villages in Gloucestershire with literary connections. A trip to the moon from Herefordshire. A view of the whole of Middle England from the Malvern Hills in Worcestershire. And the house in Birmingham where the modern world was shaped. Stop 1. Coventry Transport Museum, Warwickshire. Museums. Well, I can't say that I'm one of those who trembles with delight at the sight of a piece of broken pottery or the tooth of a Neanderthal mammoth. I have at least, as I have grown older, begun to understand something of the merits of museums. The Science Museum is fun because you can push buttons and things move. The V&A has magnificent architecture. There is always something to amuse at the British Museum and I was surprisingly affected by the Pencil Museum at Keswick in Cumbria, home of the world's largest pencil. But there is one museum where I could linger forever home to the largest collection of British cars and bicycles in the world, the Coventry Transport Museum. In Coventry. Highlights of the museum include the world's oldest surviving Daimler, a wagonette dating from 1898, the world's oldest surviving standard. Field Marshal Montgomery's Humber Super Snipe Staff Car. Queen Mary's Daimler. And coming right up to date, the two fastest cars in the world. Thrust 2, which broke the world land speed record in 1983 with Richard Noble at the wheel, and Thrust SSC designed by Noble, in which Andy Green set the world's speed record of 763 miles per hour in 1997. This was the first car ever to break the sound barrier. Wow. 
The vehicle we have come to see, however, is something a little slower. Coventry, before the war, was the centre of the British car industry, and the museum has examples of just about every illustrious name from Britain's car-making past. Alvis, Triumph, Singer, Riley, Lanchester, Humber, Hillman, Jaguar, Rover. Many of those car makers, like Hillman and Rover, started out making bicycles, and there are some revolutionary bicycle firsts on show at Coventry. For instance, there is a Rover safety cycle, invented in Coventry by John Kemp Starley in 1885, and quite different to any other cycle that had been built before. Called a Rover because you could go roving about all over the place on it, this was the forerunner of the modern bicycle as we know it today. It had wheels of equal size, a diamond-shaped frame, and a geared chain driving the rear wheel. Bicycles really haven't changed very much since. But to my mind, the star of the show is the Ariel, the very first all-British bicycle, created by John Kemp Starley's uncle James Starley and William Hillman in 1870. The Ariel was the world's first all-metal bike and the first two-wheeled machine actually to be called a bicycle and it set the standard for bicycle design for the next 15 years. The front wheel, to which the pedals were attached directly, was huge, four feet in diameter, while the back wheel was much smaller, about two and a half feet around. And this combination quite naturally earned the Ariel the nickname of Penny Farthing. The idea behind the design was that the bigger front wheel would enable the rider to cover a greater distance with each revolution of the pedals, and hence go faster. The aerial was something of a challenge to mount, requiring a technique not dissimilar to that of getting onto a horse. The rider would stand behind the bike, holding the handlebars, and place his foot on the small step on the lower part of the backbone, the S-shaped frame running down to the small wheel. He, and it almost always was a he, for reasons that will become clear, would then hop along while pushing the bike until he had gathered enough speed for balance, and then swing himself up into the saddle connect his feet to the revolving pedals and away he would go. Simple. Once you were going, of course, you had to keep going, a bit like a shark in the water, because the saddle was positioned high on the wheel and even the longest legs couldn't reach the ground. If you stopped, you toppled over. dismount was even more tricky, as it had to be done while the bike was still in motion, for the braking system on the penny farthing was rudimentary, achieved either by backpedalling furiously or by operating a lever attached to a flimsy spoon brake. 
all in one movement. The rider had to place one foot on the step, finding it by feel, move his body out of the saddle, tilt the bike, take his other foot off the still rotating pedal, place it on the ground and use it to bring the bike to a stop before removing his first foot from the step. And more often than not, this manoeuvre would end badly. In fact, the most effective way to stop was to run into something. And while this would certainly halt the bicycle, it would at the same time hurl the rider over the handlebars to land headfirst on the road. The term breakneck speed was invented for the penny farthing, for a broken neck was often the result of going too fast to stop in a controlled manner. Conscious of the fact that prospective customers might feel a little daunted by their new machine, Starley and Hillman decided to promote the aerial by cycling the 96 miles from London to Coventry in one day. They took their bicycles to London by train, spent the night in a hotel and set off in the early morning after a cup of coffee. The London cobbles made for a bumpy start, but they soon got into their stride walking up the hills and racing down the other side at a giddy 12 miles per hour, cheered on for the most part by crowds of wide-eyed, apple-cheeked villagers, most of whom had never seen a bicycle before. They finally arrived at Starley's house in Coventry just as the cathedral clock struck midnight and were helped down from the saddle, sore but elated. After a couple of days in bed, they both returned to work, albeit walking gingerly and with an extra wide gait. In an effort to attract the female customer, Starley and Hillman brought out a new version of the aerial, specially designed to be ridden side saddle. It was a splendid idea, but Starley and Hillman were somewhat disappointed with the reception the lady aerial received. The contorted sitting position and complicated layout of the pedals, allied to the voluminous and billowy nature of a Victorian lady's petticoats, made the Lady Ariel all but impossible to govern, and several courageous young gals were sent home with serious bruises and contusions. The Lady Ariel was quietly dropped, after Hillman himself only narrowly avoided a nasty accident after getting into an irretrievable wobble while trying to ride home on one. He went off to make cars instead. While Starley pivoted to inventing the differential gear so that he could go out cycling with his hard-pedalling son James on a bicycle made for two. British pluck and invention at its best. Stop 2. Cobberley, Cowley and Colesbourne, Gloucestershire. Known as the Three Seas, Cobberley, Cowley and Colesbourne are the first three villages on the River Churn as it flows south from Seven Springs in the Cotswold Hills above Cheltenham to join the River Thames at Cricklade near Swindon. 
The three seas are not show villages like Bybury or the Slaughters, just peaceful Cotswold stone villages nestling in a quiet valley off the beaten track. Unassuming they may be, but over the years they have played host to some colourful characters. Cobberley, for instance, guards the mortal remains of Lady Joan, the mother of London's most famous Lord Mayor, Dick Whittington. She lies in a splendid tomb in the Norman Church of St Giles, beside her first husband, Sir Thomas de Berkeley, who fought bravely at the Battle of Cressy in 1346. Their little daughter, who died in infancy, lies in her own tiny tomb beside them. After Sir Thomas died, Lady Joan married Sir William Whittington of Pauntley in the Forest of Dean and had two sons by him, the youngest being Richard or Dick Whittington. William Whittington rather foolishly forgot to obtain a royal licence to marry a nobleman's widow and was thus outlawed by the King Edward III. His titles and estates were confiscated and he died in penury, leaving his son Dick a pauper. So Dick had to go to London to make a living, and here he was apprenticed to a mercer, and grew up to be a hero of legend and pantomime, beloved of children and parents the world over, thrice Lord Mayor of London, Dick Whittington. His mother, Lady Joan, who presumably is buried with her first husband at Cobberley, because her second marriage was not recognised, would have been very proud. Next, we travel downstream to the village of Cowley, where we find Cowley Manor, an Italianate pile with 50 acres of glorious gardens, where the River Churn has been landscaped into a series of lakes and cascades. In the 1850s, the curate of Cowley's lovely tumble-down little Norman church was wont to wander through this wonderland with his niece Alice Liddell, and his friend Charles Dodgson, later known to all as Lewis Carroll. It is thought that Dodgson met Alice for the very first time in the gardens of Cowley Manor, and that it was in these very same gardens that they saw a rabbit disappearing down a rabbit hole, firing Dodgson's imagination and giving him the idea for the start of what was to become one of the most popular children's stories of all time. Alice in Wonderland. Cowley Manor, now a luxury hotel, owes its present appearance to Sir James Horlick, co-inventor with his brother of the malted milky drink Horlicks, once beloved of children as a bedtime drink and still popular all over the world. So popular, in fact, that it was recently bought by Unilever for three billion pounds. Sir James Horlick is buried in the churchyard of St Mary's next door to the manor and is reputed to revisit his old home by climbing in through the large window that overlooks his tomb in the churchyard. He has been spotted frequently over the years strolling along the first floor bedroom corridor nodding affably to all and sundry no doubt checking to see that the hotel guests have all been supplied with a health-giving bedtime cup of Horlicks. 
And so to the final one of the three C's, Colesbourne. Here, the churn runs through Colesbourne Park, the home for 250 years of the Elwes family, and famous for what Country Life described in 1999 as England's greatest snowdrop garden. The snowdrop displays have gotten even more dazzling and profuse since then, and Colesbourne Park now has probably the finest display of snowdrops in Britain, if not the world with some 300 varieties on show, all developed by the present Lady Elwes, from the original collection of the Victorian naturalist Henry Elwes, after whom Britain's most prolific snowdrop, Galanthus Elwes EE, is named. Henry Elwes, who in 1897 became the first person to receive the Royal Horticultural Society's highest honour, the Victoria Medal, also collected trees, and the park contains a famous arboretum of rare and exotic trees brought here from all over the world, and continually added to by subsequent generations. In 1906, in partnership with the botanist Augustine Henry, Henry Elwes published what is still regarded as the definitive study of British trees, called The Trees of Great Britain and Ireland, in which they document the finest specimens of every species of tree grown in Britain and Ireland. Henry Elwes visited every tree recorded in the book himself, a task that took him 15 years. The arboretum he planted at Colesbourne boasts some of the biggest and best trees in the world, including 11 British champions. The first Elwes to live at Colesbourne Park was John Elwes, who purchased the estate in 1789. He was the son of John Elwes the Miser, a member of Parliament who inherited a brewing fortune from his father and vast lands from his uncle, but lived like a pauper, eating stale food, making a glass of wine last for a week, shuffling around in tattered clothes, looking like a beggar, and pocketing the pennies offered to him by generous passers-by, and letting his numerous properties dilapidate until they were uninhabitable. John Elwes was, in fact, the inspiration for one of the most famous literary characters of all time. Scrooge, the miser from Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. What he would have made of the extravagant amounts of money spent by his descendants on snowdrops and trees at Colesbourne Park, I just don't know. So there we have it. Three little neighbouring Cotswold villages that gave us Dick Whittington, Alice in Wonderland and Scrooge. Curiouser and curiouser. Stop 3. Whitbourne, Herefordshire Stop
Star Wars or Star Trek. The long-running debate over which is best will probably never be resolved. But the fine old Norman church of St John the Baptist in the village of Whitbourne, lost in the deep and lovely lanes of timeless East Herefordshire, is where fans of both should boldly go. For here lies the force. Francis Godwin, Bishop of Hereford, the very first man to take us to the moon. Whitbourne, lying in the valley of the River Teem and resplendent with apple blossoms and honeysuckle and wild roses and ancient dust, is a mix of higgledy-piggledy brick and black and white cottages, Tudor chimneys, a medieval manor house, Victorian hall and a Norman church, famed for its crude but comely 12th century sandstone font. The church seems far too imposing for a village of this size until you realise that Whitbourne was a country retreat for the bishops of Hereford and the splendour of the church reflects this honour. Whitbourne Court, a rambling, many-gabled house glimpsed white through the trees behind the church, was the bishop's summer palace. And although the house has been refined and added to over the years, the medieval core survives. And it was in his study here, in around 1628, that Francis Godwin wrote The Man in the Moon, the first science fiction novel in the English language. In it, he showed us the way to the stars, three and a half centuries before George Lucas or Gene Roddenberry. The Man in the Moon tells the story of a Spaniard, Domingo Gonzalez, who is marooned on the island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic after falling ill on board ship. He escapes by training a flock of wild swans to carry him into the sky on a sleigh, and they eventually fly him all the way to the moon. On his journey, he discovers weightlessness and realises that Weights are not drawn towards the centre of the earth as their natural place, but are drawn by a secret property of the globe or something within it as the lodestone draweth iron. He is describing gravity some 70 years before Isaac Newton saw the apple fall from the tree. Bishop Godwin foresees human flight and telecommunications and observes the truth of Copernicus's theory that the earth is not the centre of the universe but revolves around the sun, even speculating on the idea of an infinite universe with many worlds, radical ideas at the time. On the moon, Gonzalez meets the Lunarians, a race of superbeings who live a kind of utopian existence, with no illness, so they have no need of doctors, no arguments or crime, so they have no need of lawyers, no poverty or hunger. If they perceive evil in any of their children, they exile them to earth, and Gonzalez, realising that he can never attain the state of perfection of the Lunarians, decides to return to Earth himself. 
Bishop Godwin did not publish The Man in the Moon himself, but after he died in 1633, the manuscript was discovered in a drawer of his desk in his study at Whitbourne Court, and the book was published posthumously in 1638, at the dawn of the age of discovery and curiosity and science. The Man in the Moon caught the imagination of the world, and by 1728, 100 years after he had written it, at least 25 editions had been published in a host of different languages. No one quite knows where Bishop Godwin was laid to rest in the lovely church at Whitbourne. Most probably it was in the chancel. But to be present in this quiet, unchanging Herefordshire churchyard at dusk, and to watch the moon come up, just as Bishop Godwin did 400 years ago, is intoxicating. As I sat there, I could swear I saw a bevy of swans fly over, high in the sky, silhouetted against the moon. Stop 4. Worcestershire Beacon, the Malvern Hills, Worcestershire. On a clear day, the view from the top of Worcestershire Beacon, 1,395 feet above sea level, and the highest point on England's oldest hills, the Malverns, takes in a fifth of all England, some 10,000 square miles, covering 13 counties, from Shropshire to Devon, from the Black Mountains of Wales to the Cotswold Hills, the Severn Valley, the Bristol Channel, and three cathedrals, Hereford, Worcester and Gloucester. Looking east, there is nowhere higher until you reach the Ural Mountains, two and a half thousand miles away in Russia. Beacons have been kindled on the summit since early times, and the hill is referenced in the historian Lord Macaulay's poem Armada, describing the chain of beacons that were lit to warn of the approach of the Spanish Armada in 1588. And on and on, without a pause, untired they bounded still. All night from tower to tower they sprang, they sprang from hill to hill, till twelve fair counties saw the blaze on Mulvern's lonely height. This superlative view of Middle England inspired one of the first poems of Middle English, Piers Plowman, written by a monk at Malvern Priory, William Langland, in around 1370, predating even Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. The poem is an allegory and tells of the visions of a man asleep on the Malvern Hills, 
dreaming about the eternal struggle to lead a good Christian life and attacking the corruption of the clergy. Amongst many memorable lines from the poem, two in particular have become much quoted. Faith without deeds is worthless. And The man who tells the truth to those in power is condemned first. How true! Another, inspired by the very English view from the Malvern Hills, was that very English composer Sir Edward Elgar, who was born in a little brick cottage at Upper Broadheath to the north of the Beacon, and he lived in Worcestershire most of his life, playing and teaching the violin, composing and wandering the lanes and hills in search of musical ideas, which is perhaps why his music manages to so powerfully capture the essence of England and the English countryside. Any filmmaker who wants to establish an English setting or backdrop will choose Elgar for the soundtrack, for his music is as iconic of England as a red telephone box, or a constable painting, or a village cricket match, or a cream tea. Elgar's music is associated with two traditional national occasions. Land of Hope and Glory, adapted from his Pomp and Circumstance March No. 1 with words by A.C. Benson, was composed as a coronation ode for Edward VII. Considered to be a national anthem for England, it is traditionally sung lustily by the audience at the last night of the proms. and the performing of Nimrod from Elgar's Enigma Variations by the massed bands at the Cenotaph in London on Remembrance Sunday is always deeply moving. One of the most popular walks to the top of Worcestershire Beacon commences in the town of Great Malvern, which lies on the eastern slopes of the hill. A moderately steep one-hour climb, it starts at St Anne's Well, where walkers can slake their thirst before or after the ascent with Malvern water, which springs from a carved water spout housed in a pretty 19th century brick pavilion. Malvern water, famously drunk by our present Queen, 
and taken with her everywhere so as to avoid having to drink the local water, has been enjoyed by royalty since at least the 16th century. Elizabeth I is known to have found it efficacious, and it was first bottled during the reign of James I in 1622 at Holy Well in Little Malvern, at what is now the world's oldest bottling plant. Thanks to the water's healing powers, Malvern became a spa town in Victorian times, and Schweppes began bottling Malvern water commercially in 1850. Its popularity was assured when the spring water was presented to Queen Victoria at the Great Exhibition of 1851. There was some nervous royal gulping in 2010 when Schweppes, by now part of Coca-Cola, announced that they were closing their Malvern water bottling plant. Oh no! But a family-run company saved the day and Malvern water is now bottled on a smaller scale exclusively by the Holywell Water Company under the name Holywell Malvern Spring Water. As Her Majesty was heard to say at the time, We are not displeased. Stop 5. Soho House, Handsworth, Birmingham. Once a month, during the latter half of the 18th century, a small group of friends would gather in the elegant dining room at Soho House in Handsworth on the edge of Birmingham and sit down around the table to enjoy a good meal, exchange ideas and decide the fate of the world. They would always meet on the Sunday or Monday nearest the full moon so that there was enough moonlight to guide them home along the unlit roads. And so their circle became known as the Lunar Society, or as they sometimes called themselves, the Lunatics. Earthly successors, perhaps, to Bishop Godwin's Utopian Lunarians, who we met earlier in Whitbourne. The members of the Lunar Society were the finest minds of their time, scientists, industrialists and inventors, and they were more powerful than emperors or kings and queens, presidents or prime ministers. One could say they were almost gods, for they had the ability to create new worlds. Their power lay not in military might, but in ideas. Ideas that could and would change the world forever. They were revolutionaries, leaders of an industrial revolution whose purpose was to build, not destroy. A revolution whose philosophy was to use science and invention to benefit mankind, to transform medicine, transport, education and politics, to solve the problems of the world and to improve the lives of everybody. It must have been a heady and exhilarating time to be alive, as they witnessed the dawn of a new world of possibilities, a world that they themselves had brought about, and that they could design and shape themselves, 
with their inventions, ingenuity and imagination. Their outlook was liberal. They abhorred slavery and tyranny, both of church and state, and sympathised with the ideals behind both the French and American revolutions. And yet at the same time, they believed in capitalist self-help and the benefits of success and hard work being rewarded. At the head of the table, his back to the triple bow window overlooking the garden, sat the owner of Soho House, Matthew Bolton, the leading industrialist of the day. In 1766, he had built next door on Hansworth Heath the biggest factory in the world, the Soho Manufactory, which manufactured buttons, buckles, plate and silverware, and was where Bolton pioneered the production line, as well as the first workers' insurance schemes and sick pay. On Bolton's right sat Erasmus Darwin, a jolly giant weighing 20 stone, doctor, poet, inventor, botanist, abolitionist, visionary and father of 14 children. His works on botany and the human body anticipated the theory of evolution developed by his grandson Charles Darwin three quarters of a century later. He developed a steering system that was later adopted by Henry Ford and foresaw the use of steam-powered propulsion. Or, as he put it, Soon shall thy arm, unconquered steam, afar drag the slow barge or drive the rapid car, or on wide waving wings expanded bear the flying chariot through the fields of the air. which brings us neatly to the man seated on Matthew Bolton's left, James Watt, inventor of the world's first practical steam engines, which kick-started and powered the Industrial Revolution, and were manufactured in Bolton's Soho foundry at nearby Smedic. Birmingham's Science Museum has a magnificent example of a Bolton and Watt steam engine on display, a Smedic engine built in 1779 and the oldest working steam engine in the world. Also around the table at Soho House at various times were Josiah Wedgwood, the master potter, Joseph Priestley, rebellious clergyman, radical political thinker and brilliant chemist who discovered oxygen, carbon dioxide and carbonated drinks, William Murdoch who invented gaslight and installed it in the Soho manufactory, making it the first gaslit factory in the world. James Carr, inventor of affordable soap, and William Small, physician and mentor to Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States. Others would come and go, but these were the core members. If you visit Soho House today, it is possible to sit at the very table in the very room where the world we live in now was conceived and nurtured 250 years ago. 
It is an exhilarating experience. Also worth a visit is St Mary's Church, a mile up the road, where the founding fathers of the Industrial Age, Matthew Bolton, James Watt and William Murdoch, all rest from their endeavours beneath monuments created by the finest sculptors of the day, Flaxman and Chantry. Truly, St Mary's Church, Handsworth, is the Westminster Abbey of the Industrial Revolution. Well, that concludes our tour of the West Midlands. In the next episode, we visit the North Midlands, where we find the world's first skyscraper in Shropshire. Walk beside a lake dedicated to love in Staffordshire. Admire the trees of the world's best-known forest in Nottinghamshire. Discover a Derbyshire village that died so others might live and stroll through the world's first public park. This has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne, with guest stars Rupert Van Sittert and Emma Van Sittert. Find out more at ChristopherWynne'sINeverKnewThat.com and check out the I Never Knew That books online and at all good bookshops. My thanks to Rupert and Emma, to my executive producer, Jeremy Conrad, and to you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review, and join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. <laughs>